Richard Blissbrook here. We are live. You sit here today with none other than Mark Victor Hansen. Bob Proctor. This is Kendra Hall. Tanya Stringer. Jeff Canfield. Whit Jones. James Clear. Les Brown. People want to hear stories. I like getting stories out of my guests here. So thanks for joining us. And here I am with Dr. Joseph Castro. <laughs> Joe, it is a great honor to capture some of your time. I don't, I don't know that I know anybody that's probably busier than you are in your new role. And I want to thank you for joining me here on the Authentic Networker, which may seem like a kind of a strange podcast platform for you, but one of the things I've learned about you and about Mary is in your role in academia, networking plays an interesting and, and exciting and phenomenal part of your success. Yes. So uh, just a little context, context for our viewers. Uh, I met Joe on the beach here in Lanai. I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, I can't remember, years ago. Yeah, probably four or five, six years ago. And we were just kind of swimming about 20 feet apart. And, you know, when you live here on the island of Lanai and Hawaii, it's real small. There's not a lot of people here. And you can kind of tell when somebody isn't from here. And so I could tell that Joseph and Mary weren't from Lanai. And I don't know if it was Kimmy that asked you or I asked you, but um, I asked, uh, uh, my guest here today, where he was from, and he said Fresno, and that's like right near where I grew up. And so we developed this great connection, and over the last five or six years, uh, a great friendship, which is an interesting um, perspective in that I barely got out of high school, <laughs> and I'm on record, Dr. Castro. <laughs> cheating on my civics final in order to get a 1.9 GPA to get out of Merced High. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I never went to college. And here you are um, with a doctorate from Stanford. And then I just want to presence this for, for everybody that Dr. Castro is the chancellor of the California State University I don't know why you, the, the educational system. That's right. Which, uh, think about the magnitude of this, folks. It's 485,000 students, 53,000 staff and faculty, and 3.8 million alumni. It's the largest educational institution in the world. Isn't that right, Joe? It is. Yeah, hard to believe that, but it is. So the, one of the stories that I want to start with, Joe, is for one of the things I think is so cool about your story is you are the first person in your family to get a college education, and you kind of overcompensated. So would you tell us, tell everybody like the story of your family, your, your grandfather, your father, how you were raised. You have a fascinating story, and everybody needs to hear it. Can you, let's start there. Sure. Well, thank you for inviting me, Richard. I, I still remember uh, floating in the water that first time <laughs> and meeting you and Kimmy and uh, 
so glad that we've we've met and i'm i'm honored to be on your your podcast thank you um, yeah i mean you and i have a lot in common from the central valley and uh for people that don't know about california central valley it's filled with immigrants from all over the world and um, my great grandfather uh came to this country about a hundred years ago um, probably a little bit more than that, because about 100 years ago is when my grandfather came as a young young boy, what, two years old, two and a half years old. Um, but my great grandfather was helping to uh, build the railroad. Uh, and I think it was the Santa Fe Railroad, Richard, wow. based on the stories. That's my best sense of it. And uh, he brought my uh, grandfather, who's a baby, and my great grandmother, grandmother came as well and um, these are stories that I heard from my grandfather who raised me but he remembers um, living in tents all along the railroad as my grandfather my great-grandfather was working on on it and he remembers going to kindergarten at Cressy Elementary not far from Merced where you're from yes and I uh, Cressy. <laughs> he, he i remember him telling me a story he got a teddy bear for christmas from his kindergarten teacher it was the first gift he'd ever received and here they are they're living in tents uh, struggling quite a lot and he became a farm worker as a young man picking crops uh, all around the central valley and uh, central coast uh, picked a lot of strawberries and other other uh, fruits and, and vegetables and then um, eventually settled in tents in my hometown where I was born and my mother was born in a I guess the way I call it a shed not far from the tents where they started but they uh, basically there a few miles from a highway there and um, I, I came along I my mother was their oldest uh, my grandparents had five kids and she was the oldest and uh, she she never married. In fact, I was with her yesterday we were talking about this and she she's living in Hanford now and has, has never married. Uh, met my father uh, who was a Teamster truck driver and uh, his idea of a good time was driving all around the country. and That was not her idea of a good time. So uh, I was raised by her and my grandparents uh, in my hometown of Hanford about an hour and a half or so from Merced. And as you said, I was the first in my family to go to college. And that was all because of a counselor at my high school who said to me one day, you know, the University of California at Berkeley is interested in more students from the San Joaquin Valley. And there's this program on Saturday uh, up in Fresno. And, um, you know, why don't you go go listen and if you're interested you can take your application and and uh, see what happens and I'd never been to the Bay Area of California <laughs> not not to Berkeley and so um, I asked my mother and my mother's like well why don't we go go listen I mean I was probably going to go to the community college in in Visalia there and uh, ironically I might have been at Fresno State if things had worked out so uh, instead, I went to this meeting with about 100 other Central Valley students, and uh, what I found out is that they were not only talking with us about the campus, but then we sat down with a counselor, and she reviewed my application, 
And the next thing that happened just completely changed my life. I mean, she stamped my application, admitted right in front of my mom and me. And that was the furthest thing that I thought could happen on that day. I, I thought that I'd have to wait some months and then see what happens, but admitted right there on the spot. And then the next thing that happened is my grandparents said, well, you can't go to the Bay Area. That's too far away. And we don't like that. That's, that's not the right thing for you. And I had always done what my grandparents wanted. So that was the first time in my life. And thankfully, my mother was open to it. That was the first time in my life I ever did anything that they didn't want me to do. They ended up figuring out it was a really good decision later, but that was a huge uh, decision for me in my life. And without that decision, everything else, you know, wouldn't have happened in the way it did. So uh, just being able to go to the university there changed my whole life. And that's why I'm here now, because I figured out, you know, universities can really make a huge difference in a person's life, transform it in positive ways. And that's, that's really what I ended up dedicating my career to doing is, is trying to open up opportunities for others to get a higher education in whatever field they're interested in. And you have done that in um, so many award-winning ways in your career. I got to ask you this, Joe. Um, you know, I think it probably could be said, even though you didn't go into it in detail, that you were raised in a somewhat challenging environment. Yeah. Not a lot of um, affluence. Things were, you know, your grandparents were living in a tent. Your mom was, you know, living in a, in a shack and your dad, uh, wherever he is or was, was driving a truck. You know, you've had the benefit of mentoring and watching a lot of kids come and go. A lot of kids that had a lot of opportunity and had a lot of abundance and had, you know, a great home life. And some of them turn out great and some of them don't turn out great. And then you've seen a lot of kids come from challenging backgrounds that have turned out great. And some of them don't turn out great. Do you have a sense of what it was about you? What, what was the story that you told yourself, the belief that you developed in yourself that had you do courageous, confident things. That thing you said about um, going against your grandparents' wishes at your age with as much influence as they must have had on your life, that's a bold move. Yeah. Had you not made it, your whole life would have been different. Not necessarily bad, but different for sure. Very. Do you have a sense of what you developed as a kid? What was the story? What was the belief that gave you that kind of vision? Yeah, I, I see this in a lot of students today as well who are first in their families. You know, their families have never experienced higher education, but it is one of their dreams. And so my my grandparents and my mother did dream for my sister and me that we would go to college. I think for them, every college was the same. So the one nearest Hanford was the one they preferred, um, not this one far away in the Bay Area. And why would you 
choose that place over this one because, and I find that to be the case in my work today, you know, a university is a university is a university. And, and so for some families and they focus in on, well, I want my kid to be near me because I'm scared of X, Y, or Z. So I think um, for me that I had that love, the support, um, but it was, I think, Within me, I, I matured early because I didn't have a father around me and uh, lived in a public housing facility for a good part of my childhood. A lot of alcoholism and domestic violence and a lot of other crimes. Cops are always there. And my mother, you know, she has said to me, why, Joe, you were probably um, as mature as a 30-year-old when you were 10 because of all that. So I was the only guy in the house. I think those kinds of things can either send a young man into a really bad place. Or for me, I think I just said, I've got to step up here. And, uh, and I think I was just open to, to growing in new ways. So for me, that, that decision to go away, while it was a huge decision, I was excited by it. Scary too, but boy, I was excited by it. And opened all these other doors for me. And I try when I talk with students about their own goals to listen to them and really understand where they're coming from, because a lot of them are open to that idea. They just don't, they don't really know what the options are and their parents may not know either. And so part of it is educating the families about what are the options and what's the best thing for, for them and for their students. You know, one of the things that you've told me in the past, Joe, is that your life was so positively altered by the university system that you, you know, kind of your life purpose, I, I want you to speak to it, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but was, you know, to make it your mission for the rest of your life to provide that same pathway for as many other kids as possible. Can you speak to that a little bit like yeah you know what happened at berkeley and when did you decide you know i'm going to get as much education as i can but more importantly when did you decide what you were going to do with that education and and why what's that life purpose all about well i think it started as a teenager where i was very interested in public service and uh I was getting involved in different kinds of things in my small town in Hanford. And I was the editor of my school newspaper and started discovering what was happening in the community and around the country and starting to write about that. And so it started with that kernel, but I didn't know until I got to Berkeley, well, what should I major in? What, what, what is it that I'm most interested in? And I found political science as the area of interest. And for a while, I thought I would become an attorney. Uh, and that's what my grandfather really wanted me to become an attorney. Uh, because, you know, in a lot of families like mine, they knew about lawyers and doctors, and but not so much about, you know, professors or uh, university administrators. So I remember, um, you know, even after I received my first degree in political science, he started telling all of his brothers, oh, Joe's going to be an attorney. And I was in a master's program for public policy. And that's when I decided I really want to focus on public service and being a professional that could help 
whatever level of government or organization be more effective in serving uh, its citizens. And then that's when the higher education piece came in because I thought, well, if I'm going to work for an organization, I want it to have purpose. And for me, the university transformed my whole life. So I think I want to be part of the university and the service part kind of married into that. And then later at Stanford, I brought in the leadership part. You know, what does it mean to, to be a leader in a transformative organization? So it kind of brought the service, uh, the leadership and the policy all together. And it was at my graduation, my master's degree in public policy or my grandparents were like, okay, now we understand why you're not going to be an attorney and you're going to do this other thing. So, you know, as part of it is educating the family too. And, uh, yeah. and, and so they, they were able to see that and, and they were able to actually be here for my, when I received my PhD too, which was really nice. It was great that they could see that. Well, let's give people a little, uh, Cliff Note course in uh, a Stanford degree in leadership in a transform transformative organization. What does it mean to be a leader in a transformational organization or a transformative organization? Well, I learned a lot at Stanford about leading in transformational organizations. I, I was taught by uh, several great professors, but one of them was a guy named John Gardner and John Gardner was in the Lyndon Johnson administration. He was the first secretary of health, education, and welfare. He was also the only Republican in the LBJ administration, uh, but he's the guy that um, is responsible for Medicare, for um, PBS, Sesame Street. Um, he developed the um, senior corps common cause. So this was a guy who had been a leader in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors. I'd never met anybody who had led in all three sectors until I met him. And he was one of my professors, as well as uh, the, you know, the former university president there, Donald Kennedy, who was one of the most successful presidents in the country during his time. He just passed away from COVID, unfortunately. Wow. last year sad um but i i was able to learn from folks like that a guy named jim march who if you were to do a search of harvard business review you'd find that he was well, they called him in there the guru of leadership gurus he was a guy that most of the gurus referred to as their mentor and i am not a guru but he was one of my mentors and basically um that that's where i figured out that being a university leader could really make a positive difference for so many people. And, you know, 500,000 students, <laughs> I get to do that now. And so many of them, Richard, come from backgrounds like I did. And yeah. that's so, so incredibly gratifying. Yeah. One of the things that I was fascinated with and watching you, Joe, and I've had the great opportunity of watching you work in the last three or four years. Yeah. I, I don't know if you thought you were working or you knew I was watching you work, but you've been gracious to invite me to several functions where I got to watch you and Mary work. 
Yeah. And if you were to ask me, you know, five years ago, what does the president of, when you and I met, you were the president of Fresno State University, and now you're the chancellor of all the state universities. If you were to ask me, what does the president of Fresno State University do? I, I would say, uh, I, I don't know. Um, make sure everybody gets to class. I don't, I don't know. What he, <laughs> I don't know what he does. He's just in total awe and fascination of watching your leadership, your servant leadership in play. And one of the things that I've learned about leadership is if your leadership is about you, if the mission is about you, if anything is about you, you can't be a servant leader. That's right. It's a selfless profession. And to watch you and Mary work and watch how you are so present to other people, so focused on them, so gracious, generous with your, your listening and your, your empathy for them, your vision for them, and, and whatever they want to accomplish is, it was a work of art to actually watch you work. You. And I, one of the things I want you to speak to, because I, I think in today's leadership environment where, so you're leading a group of 500,000 transient people, right? They're in, they're turning over every four years. Yeah. Ideally, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm working on that. Let's <laughs> just assume they all graduate, right? Uh, and 53,000 employees, I don't know, you probably know where that makes you rank in the, in the size of companies in the state of California or the nation, but it's huge. And one of the things I see people challenged with today when they're leading masses of people, and this is maybe like a real key distinction in leadership, and you mentioned political science. And one of the things that I paid close attention to in the last couple of years is how did you maneuver with people given the political climate? Because I don't imagine you have the luxury in your position of, be, of taking a political stance in, you know, I'm a liberal or I'm a conservative, but I just watched the dynamic, Joe, of, okay, you're, you're leading a university, Fresno State University, Fresno's right in the heart of immigration, right? California, California does not function without immigrants, right? right. And the irony of that is the, the whole immigration thing really just sort of revolves around who got here first, right? I guess if you got here 150 years ago, you weren't an immigrant, but if you're coming now, you're an immigrant, which is rather bizarre. But the, the state does not function without immigrants, right. which is kind of a liberal, you know, empathy thing. And yet, the university doesn't function very well without donors. And I watched you and Mary work the room with what I assume were very conservative, very wealthy business people who you're getting to donate millions of dollars to support the life of what is often a disenfranchised immigrant. Yeah. And 
one of the things I paid close attention to in just watching and listening to you is how did you, how were you with people? How were you with the liberals? How were you with the conservatives so that they all felt at home with you? They felt like they trusted you. And I never heard anyone in your presence get political. How do you do that dance, Joe? Because that's a that's a huge leadership issue that people have today. Really is a huge issue. Um, and I think it does start with being a servant leader. And for, for Mary and me, um, our, our work is guided by what we can do to support our students from all backgrounds. So if they're a student or someone we want to become a student, then we care about them. So it's not political it's educational. And um, I have so appreciated your joining us for different events. And some of the events that you've come to have been to try to inspire, both thank people for providing support for our students, scholarships or other support, as well as try to inspire them to do even more. And we have the students there to testify as to how their support has made a huge difference. And I would talk a lot about, and I still do, that we're preparing a new generation of leaders, in this case in Fresno for the Central Valley, because most of those graduates would stay there in all the different professions. And then for the CSU for California, um, we had 160,000 graduates last year alone. And um, I'd say probably almost half were the first in their families to go to college. So changing the whole dynamics uh, for their families. And, and I believe by doing it at that scale, then you start to strengthen the community because you have more people who are actually fulfilling their, their goals and dreams. So we tried very much to stay out of politics and to focus on education, but you picked an issue like immigration and we serve 10,000 dreamers that, you know, students who are like my grandfather came at two and a half, you know, no one asked him, what well, do you want to come to the United States? His parents brought him here. Well, I have 10,000 dreamers where it happened pretty much the same thing. They, they came with their families and, uh, and some of the stories I've heard have just been incredible stories of resilience. The fact that they're even alive or here is a testimony to their strength and their character. And for me, I just, I want to educate them along with all of our other students. And uh, because I know that then they'll be able to provide a, a quality life for themselves as, as well as strengthen the community. And, and I think strengthen the economy. And thankfully, I think the leaders, elected leaders in both parties here in California understand that that's an important role for the university. And we released an economic impact report just last week. And for every dollar invested in the CSU, uh, $7 is returned to California. And if you include the contributions of our alumni, we have about two and a half million in the labor force. Then the effect is actually $30 for every dollar invested. So that's a pretty good re return on investment, right, Richard, in terms of 
an organization. And I love that. It's not only personally meaningful, but I can see that it's having a tremendous economic uh, impact as well. This is a bit of a philosophical and futuristic question, but I sure I know you think about it a lot. Um, what what role and how important? What's the impact of education of the upcoming community, the the younger generation? What impact is that going to have on? California and the United States and, and the world in our future. I mean, we, I don't think, I don't have all the good stats, but I don't think the United States ranks as high as it could in global education. You know, there is this reputation that, you know, Asian uh, communities value education more than Americans do or Maybe the Indian um, communities value education more than Americans do. But how important is taking education seriously for the future of our planet, of our country, of our state? Like, how do you think about that? How do, how do you think and, and how do you enroll the business people, the conservatives, the, the money in investing in a, a community, a society that's going to function and prosper 50 or 100 years from now. It's hugely important. And I think about it not just from the organization that I lead, but we're part of what I would call an educational ecosystem that would include K through 12 schools, community colleges, because half of the students that I serve are transfers from the community college. So that's a huge path. What and then if they want advanced graduate degrees that we don't offer, then they'd go to the University of California system or uh, one of the private universities like Stanford or USC, and there's a lot of smaller ones. So I look at us as an ecosystem. And to give you an example, Richard, uh, we are the single largest provider of uh, teachers. Um, so we're heavily implicated in terms of what happens in K-12. Those are our graduates. Right. And right. so whenever I hear a university saying, well, K-12 is the problem, we're great, that is not right. We are in this together. And my feeling is we've got to work even more closely together so that more students are better prepared earlier. So when they come to the CSU or to UC, they graduate much faster and that will be more efficient for the economy. So more people could actually get educated uh, who want to be educated and that will strengthen California. And then when you think about the innovation part, just the, the number of college graduates, and you're such an incredible exception to this, but we know <laughs> that during the, you know, during the, the pandemic, those without college degrees have really suffered yeah, especially young women. Um, so I think that's another reason why, you know, more folks should consider at least a certificate program. Like my daughter got into one in construction management. She's been promoted several times since then. So it's not just a degree. Very bright lady. I'm lucky you, yeah, you know her, but yeah. I, I, I think education like that, it doesn't have to be a degree. It can be a course. It could be a certificate program. Whatever meets the needs of someone 
who's trying to advance themselves intellectually or economically. I think that's where we play a huge role. Yeah. I'm glad to hear you say that because, you know, a lot of people think people in academia are only about, you know, the traditional degrees, but education is education and there's various ways to get it. You can get it the way I got it, which <laughs> was by bloody in my nose for about 25 years. I have often thought, Joe, what I would have accomplished in business if I had a specific degree. The one I think would have helped me the most would have been a law degree. Yeah. I wouldn't have practiced law. Yeah. But to have a law degree and be a business person, whoa, what would that have been worth to me? Uh, a hundredfold. Very powerful. Absolutely. A hundredfold what I've accomplished easily. And the other thing I wanted to just share with you and get your thoughts on, and I, I, I don't want I don't want to be depressing at all around education, but I just want to speak to perhaps the the challenge and the opportunity and how important it is that we all think about this in ways that maybe we can shift it. You know, the number one challenge that I've had, Joe, in running a successful business, building a successful business, is hiring competent people. Yes. And, you know, and I'd like to say educated people. And I don't mean people without degrees. I mean people with degrees, like they have a four-year degree or they have a two-year degree, but yeah. they just, they don't have the fundamentals. Yeah. And, you know, for example, one of the, it's almost a running joke in, in my organization that if somebody's going to apply for a position, I wonder if they're going to have typos or spelling errors in their cover letter. Because here's what I can tell you. Most of them will. Yeah. And most, uh, not most, but a, a shocking number of them are going to spell my name wrong. Right? <laughs> oh my God. And, yeah. <laughs> That's and, the worst. <laughs> right. And I think, oh my gosh, what, what could business do? And, you know, business is one of the engines that makes life better oh, for yeah. people. It provides opportunity and employment and goods and services. And, and if we want American businesses to thrive, We've got to supply those businesses with competent people. Yes. And, you know, that's people that, you know, they're educated. However they get that education doesn't matter. But, boy, I've seen the consequences of that. Just the, the amount of time that I've wasted yeah. talking to people who I know they cannot function in my business because if they can't even apply for a job in an educated manner, how are they going to be a functional employee for me? It's not going to happen. Right. That's costly for you to have somebody who doesn't work out right. Every time we make a hiring mistake, that's, that's a huge cost. Huge Absolutely. cost. It's a yeah. cost. It's a turnover. It's, it's, it's one of the big drags on business, hiring competent people. And, and then, you know, of course, if you get desperate, you end up hiring somebody that's not competent and then it really costs you. Absolutely. In my dream world, and I'm going to try to scale it through my system here, I think every single one of our students should start 
doing an internship of some kind as early as possible because that's where some of these things are learned, you know, showing up on time, making sure that the letters, I remember my first boss just drilled into me, a letter that is finished on time uh, that may not be exactly right is better than a perfect letter that's an hour late. It's like, yeah. I just always have remembered that. So I, I want our students to be able to experience that as early as possible because so many of them, you know, as we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, if you're a first in your family, it's not like mom and dad could tell you stories of how they did it because their jobs were different, you know, with different yep. expectations. I mean, I found at Fresno State, some of our students didn't even know how to dress for the interview. So, you know, we had the clothing closet so they could have access to suits. And, and then the advice was there too. So I, I would love to do more of that with the business sector. And I think there's a win for the business sector because you get somebody good, you keep them. <laughs> and if you get somebody that's not going to work out, well, you know that earlier at a less, right. you know, lower cost than later. So I've been encouraging all of our alumni to think about who, you know, who are hiring to think about, you know, even hiring one student and, and that will make a huge change. I think they'll be much more prepared. Yeah. The, the symbiotic relationship between formal education and real time, it's just not something you can teach in the classroom. Yeah. And um, that, that gives you um, one plus one equals three, I think. The last question I want to ask you, uh, Joe, is about you and Mary. A lot of the people that listen to my podcast are couples working a business, working together. Yeah. And one of the things I marvel at is how you and Mary work together. And it's even even in my audience, it's it, there's a similarity where oftentimes one of the people, which is very often the the, the wife in the couple is the dominant successful business owner. Yeah. And the husband has to figure out a way or the partner has to figure out a way to work effectively together, to dance together, to empower each other, to champion each other, to support each other, to set the competition and, and ego aside. And one of the things I've watched you and Mary do is, is network and network authentically, meaning the two of you are just so real. You're so down to earth. You so have no pretense, no agenda other than move education forward. What do you, what do you think about how, may, maybe I should be asking Mary this because I, I, I know you're gonna say, She's a force to be reckoned with. She's, yeah. she's real behind the scenes powerhouse. Napoleon Hill said behind every successful man is a really extraordinary woman. And uh, you really have that going on. Can you speak to how you and Mary work together and how she sees her role, which is she doesn't have the titles and the accolades and the awards, but she does a lot of work. Absolutely. I, I'm so lucky because, you know, I met Mary when I was barely 18 years old and she was 17. So, 
you know, um, we've grown up together and gone through different challenges in our life. But when we first got to Fresno, we, we were so happy because we were able to serve at home. And we just felt like that, you know, not only was our family there, but the community was our family. And there was no rule book for her role. There, of course, there were expectations of me, but no rule book for her role. And we just decided together that um, we're going to see what would make sense. And she just started joining me for different meetings and events. I had her move in, uh, create an office, which was kind of, wow, she's got an office. You know, a lot of things that uh, other university presidents have not done. And what we found is that people started calling her and getting her involved and it happened organically and it was all about serving you know for mary it's all serving others it's it's authentic and if somebody needed her help fundraising for a program for students or she would get called by students can you come to our uh, meeting so you can hear what we're doing can you come to a performance uh, faculty would do the same thing staff would do the same thing and the next thing we know um, you know, she's doing all these different things. And the, the tie is it was all about supporting the university. Now, what has happened because we're in a different role. Um, I love her so much. She, she has had to change her whole perspective. And now her focus has been on how do I help the other um, first ladies or first gentlemen at all the 23 campuses. What can I share with them that would be helpful? Or can I listen to them and just be a sounding board? And um, that's what she's doing right now. And then I think she's gonna start pretty soon fundraising for basic needs for other campuses uh, as they ask, but it's all been happening organically. And you know, I think where I come into this is some university presidents that the last thing they want is their wife or husband anywhere in there business but i for me i love having her around and involved and we're a team and uh, and i see the value in that so uh, i'm thankful because she doesn't earn one cent she's a volunteer and i think that's one of the other things richard is because she's a volunteer everybody knows that she's there for all the right reasons and yeah. I, that isn't necessarily uh replicable in business but i think the partnership piece is the teamwork piece and you know how do your skills complement one another and i i would know that she could go to a place and be more effective than me and that's okay with me because i they'll listen to her more than they listen to me and as long as we get the job done that's great yeah well you could you certainly could send her she is uh she's a networking sort of force <laughs> And that's, that brings me to my last question, and I'll let you get back to managing 53,000 people and 500,000 students <laughs> to save the world, basically. <laughs> so the name of this podcast is The Authentic Networker, uh, Joe, and the people that listen to it are in some way, shape, or form, a big part of what they do is network. Yes. They add to their network. They they build relationships, they serve people, they strengthen those relationships. And sometimes at some point in those relationships, they call on those people 
to buy a product or join a team or do something, yeah. right? If it's a win-win, good fit. Yeah. Can you just speak to a minute, a minute or two about how you see networking? And there's a piece of it that I that I'd like for you to touch on because you're asking, you are a salesperson. You and Mary are big time salespeople. You are asking people, a big part of your job is to donate. And I've seen people in the room that I, I think are donating millions of dollars. And that's a big sale, that's a big ask. Yeah. So can you speak to just for a couple of minutes about how have you gone about nurturing relationships? What are your principles around that? And then how do you have the courage to ask? Because what I find separates really successful people from people that just have dreams are the really successful ones nurture the relationships and then they have the courage to ask. Absolutely. Well, I've learned a lot from you too, my friend, watching your videos. Uh, I, I would say for me, it, it's how do I, um, how do I maintain all the, the supporters and friends and mentors over time and then expand that uh, in a way that supports the university that I love, in this case, the California State University. And I know Mary views this the same way, but I, you know, I have mentors from three decades ago that I'll call from time to time and they'll call me from time to time. I also network with other presidents of universities around the country. Uh, one big part of my job now is to inspire more investment of state funding. So I spend a lot of time getting to know the 120 state legislators and developing a close relationship with the governor and trying to figure out how can we work together, what, what's important to him and what's important to them and how can the university support that, that goal. So for me, the, the courage part is always rooted in the fact that I'm trying to do something to advance the organization and I feel good about that. And so even though I'm asking, like the other day I asked the governor, for $1.2 billion to help <laughs> uh, repair buildings and classrooms. And so the sell was, I believe that I can graduate more students faster if you can help me by renovating classrooms and laboratories. And he had only been planning only, but he was planning to give us 150 million. So when I took it to 1.2, you know, his eyes, but he didn't say no. And actually I, I'm hoping he'll eventually say yes here, uh, but that's just one example uh, of the work that we're doing. And as it relates to just on the last hour was on the call with one of the largest tech companies in the world that they're interested in investing in us because they're thinking about their future workforce. So it's a big, it's a big ask but I think it'll be more than worth it in terms of the human capital, all the people that would be prepared to help lead them into the future. So just trying to find those win-wins where it's not just, it's not about me, 
it's not selfishly about the system I serve. It's about how do we improve what's happening in our state in this example or in that company. Yeah, well, I can't think of a better steward of this vision, Joe, than than you. This, Thank you. this relationship between the, the workforce and competency and maturity and business is a critical relationship. And I don't know who that tech company is, but they're really, really smart to be thinking about investing in, in the education and the maturity and the responsibility of, of their future workforce because their, their business depends on it. And no better steward on the planet. You are such an amazing inspirational example of servant leadership. Thank you. Of, of just your kind generosity and your empathy and your listening. And at the same time, your extraordinary accomplishments. You have not sacrificed yourself or your integrity. And yet you have accomplished so much. And it feels kind of like you're not even at the halfway point. <laughs> I, I think- um, We'll see. God I willing, think, I'll be here a while. I think the journey and the impact of Dr. Joseph Castro on business and education in the United States of America is, is not completely written yet, for sure. Thank you, my friend, for investing the time and inspiring my audience. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. And I'm looking forward to doing some more swimming with you one of these days soon, because that will extend my life. I know that. Yes, it will. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy Lanai, my friend. Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to The Authentic Networker. Remember, the work is worth it. We'll see you next time.